Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Taisa Morimoto. Taisa received her bachelor's degree and JD from the University of Florida where she represented survivors of intimate partner violence and led workshops on civil rights restoration. She moved to Washington, D.C. to work in public policy. During her first year in the city, she worked simultaneously at the task force and at the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States as a policy research fellow. She currently works on criminal and economic justice, democracy, and census advocacy as policy counsel at the National LGBTQ Task Force. She's blogged about the dangers of the for-profit prison industry, a system which has an incentive to impose longer sentences and the impact of a recent Supreme Court decision which may help reverse this trend. She's also done work related to reproductive justice, including around sex ed policy and how it impacts LGBTQ youth. Taisa works with the task force's ongoing efforts to queer the census. The task force has been advocating for nearly 30 years to make sure LGBTQ people are added to the census and other federal surveys. Taisa is a member of the Asian American and Pacific Islanders community. She has experienced instances of microaggressions, harassment, and being bullied as an East Asian woman and a queer woman. When she attended the day-long Racial Institute for LGBTQI AAPI, at Creating Change in 2017, she recognized how similar her experiences were to others. May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We're grateful to Taisa for bringing her full self as a member of this community and her knowledge on so many important issues, including reproductive justice and sex ed policy, and the all-important 2020 census. Taisa, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm doing really well. I'm very excited to, to be talking to you and joining the activists and advocates that you've spoken to on this show. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm telling you, I mean, you have a wealth of things. I mean, 
like you start out, you know, representing survivors of intimate partner violence. And you've done workshops on civil rights restorations, reproductive health. You know, I mean, all of these things. When you went to, first went to college, what was your original degree and what did you want to study? Uh, so that's really funny you mentioned that. I, I studied sociology and anthropology. Um, really fascinating and just learning about cultures and be, like human behaviors and why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. Now it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say that, that law school wasn't even on kind of my radar at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I, I was very happy to go because I got all those experiences that you, that you mentioned, being able to represent um, survivors of intimate partner violence and also doing some work around civil rights restoration, which is really crucial and important, especially in Florida. So... Um, I'm grateful to have had that opportunity. What made you make that turn to go to, go to law school? Um, it, you know, it's something I still kind of grapple with. It was, it was a lot of um, family pressure and just kind of questions around what I would be doing um, with, in sociology and anthropology, and I, and I kind of felt that pressure um, to, to kind of go to law school, even though it wasn't – really my first choice, I would say. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when we think of Florida, um, we think of senior citizens. <laughs> um, we think of a Latino community. I know that there's a black community because it's still in the South. Um, the AAPI community, how is it represented in Florida? How big a community is it? You know, I, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and going to schools that were predominantly white. Um, and so I, I didn't see myself reflected a lot, um, especially when I was coming into the phase of my life where I realized I was queer um, and just kind of spent a lot of my life uh, before joining the task force kind of being one or the other, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, not, mm-hmm. not being able to really live out my full life how I identified. What Did you have that question in the back of your mind, particularly when you're working on civil rights restoration, that, you know, I'm working for this and that, but I'm not represented? Or, you know, is there a place for my community that I don't see represented here in this civil rights struggle? Um. You know, this this has been kind of an interesting journey in my life where I have always, um, ever since going to, to college and, and learning more about activism and kind of human rights and justices that happen here in the States and elsewhere, um, it's, it's kind of been a big struggle of mine to connect my identities to, to the work that I do. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, I... I do a lot of work for um, other communities and helping other communities. So when I did civil rights um, stuff, it was, it was a lot of um, people who are not in the same like racial identity category as I am, or maybe not even like queer folks or anything like that, but it just felt like the right thing to do. And so it's only been recently where I'm getting into more interested in, in doing specific API advocacy and specifically like queer API advocacy, which is something I didn't even know really existed, I guess, 
Um, mm-hmm. Growing up, and I didn't really have access to learn about the, the issues that our communities face or or even, as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, being able to be around so many queer API folks and just talking about our experiences and feeling validation around around that and the struggles that we faced, um, you know, as a community, but I never really thought about it as, as a systemic issue or a, or a mm-hmm. cultural community issue. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's funny because I can really call, and I don't remember, it was before you and I going to a creating change once and um, being on a bus from the airport with someone who was from the AAPI community. And you mentioned, I remember how I was reading that, but you said how when you went to that racial justice institute, how you had seen you were involved with more people from your community than you'd ever been. And that's what this young man who I was on the bus with, that's why he was saying he was coming to creating change was to be able to find his people, you know, and, and to connect with them. Was that a really watershed moment for you going there in the work that you did? A hundred percent changed my life. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I recall being in the, you know, at Creating Change, we do a lot of just introductions and, and check-ins right from the beginning. I remember we were going through probably the 80 folks who were there, queer and trans and ally API folks. And one of the the people who were there was the mother of a um, child who came out as trans, and she was there to show her support for him and, and just talk about her experiences um, as a API mother who came to accept her son. And I just remember that being the most emotional moment for me because mm. it's, just, it's just so different from my own experiences, I would say. And just to see a API mom there to support her, her trans son was just so overwhelmingly emotional for me. So just mm-hmm. right from the beginning, I remember it being very watershed for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like we are such a, a huge, diverse community, but even within our community, there's parts of it, like, you know, like you said, where we're sort of like hidden and we have to start to come out and be out and and then find, I mean, that's the beauty of creating change. I always say it's like you can go to creating change and you're going to find your tribe, you know, and no matter, you know, if it's like Sims, if it's studs, if it's trans, it, if it's your know, ethnicity, you, you will find people so that you don't feel like you're alone. When you, you know, it, it's interesting how you said how your, your family was looking at, like, what are you going to do with this? And then you went to law school. But, you know, you're not in there like a public defender or a, a, a high-power lawyer. When they saw that this because sociology and anthropology, it shows a lot of caring about people. And when you went into law, this is what you're doing. What was your family's reaction? Did they go like, you know, you know, this is not what we, we thought you'd do when you became a lawyer? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes, and I, and I still struggle with it a lot. Um, even working at the, the task force, it's, it's something that um, I don't talk to my family a lot about because they have never been very receptive to it. Um, so they don't quite know the work that I do. They don't quite understand the organization mm-hmm. I work at. Um, and their 
political beliefs, their life beliefs are just so vastly different than mine mm. that it's it's just been such a struggle to to connect with them on on that level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, did you come to when did you move to DC? Was that after that creating change? Uh, I moved to DC in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't quite recall the, the timing on that because I was originally a fellow at the task force in 2015 um, for the summer. Mm-hmm. But it was around that so, time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you become a fellow, then you go there, and now here you are. I mean, was this like a, a, dream, a dream come true place for you to settle for what you were talking about, what you wanted to do with your life? Is this, you know... Is this the task force? Is this home? It is 100%. I always uh, talk about the task force as my dream job. I, I can't believe I got so lucky to, to be working at the task force as one of my first um, uh, jobs. And everything that I've been able to do at the task force fits right into the values that I hold. Um, I love the work that I've been able to do and even be able to create my own projects. Um, it's just been fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've been looking at the page, and they're really doing a great job this month of highlighting members of a community who are Asian Pacific American. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about how, you know, in getting there, how you had experienced the microaggression, the harassment, and being bullied, and, you know, and objectified. I, I mean, I think a couple years ago, uh, one of the earlier women's march, there was a, a woman who came up and spoke, and she talked about, you know, being Asian American, and then that objectification and being bullied and harassed. And it was interesting because you saw many people who were around, particularly people not of color, who were like, you know, what's she talking about? where many people of color identified it. Do you find that those experiences that you did ha- and, and having this, this month and having your organization really, 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 I mean, doing a particularly with, the, with now social media, really doing a great job this month of reflecting on all these people, are you able to attract, be able to share, help others in the a API community come out and tell these stories so that we're aware of it. You know, we see it. I mean, you know, I mean, we see it all the time, but you don't get it until you have that face-to-face connection. Have you been able to bring your experience to that? You know, it's been really great because um, we recently, like in the past couple of years, have hired um, a lot of API staff. Um, so we now have kind of like an API caucus, and that's kind of where the idea for this Heritage and Pride um, event and this social media um, kind of campaign that we're doing was, was born out of. And so we have a wonderful um, communications manager who identifies as API in black um, who has been, you know, putting up these profiles every day. And I, I think it's just so uh-huh. great. Um, we haven't as far as I recall, we haven't had um, kind of that kind of exposure um, in the API community and in the queer community. So it's, it's been really great. And um, as I mentioned, we're having a Heritage and Pride 
um, events at the end of this month later, and we're inviting a whole bunch of queer and trans API folks to come and, and do exactly what you said, is to share their story. Um, part of what the task force is doing right now is a campaign called All of Me All the Time, which is kind of um, what we've been talking about the whole time, which is being able to bring your whole self to the table. Um, and that's what the campaign kind of focuses on, and we're hoping to um, have folks at this API event share their stories around what it means to be queer and trans API people and whatever other identities they're bringing as well. Now, you know, it also puts you, when you bring all of you together, I mean, some, I mentioned some days, is your head spinning when you see what's going on in the, at the federal level and now even in some of the state levels, you know, you've worked with survivors of intimate partner violence, and we know that this is still happening. And even with, like, the Me Too movement and that we don't hear people talking, you know, to sort of say that Me Too is also us too. And, you know, you see them trying to, and having been in Florida, and we both know what happens in Florida around voting, and look at Georgia, all these other places. Here you are, like, right in the middle of, this male storm, how do you keep yourself, I mean, you know, for, first of all, keep your head from exploding and determine <laughs> what's going to be your, your which fire or ember, because we can't put them on, what, which ember are you going to step on first? That is a great question. And I have to say that I'm very grateful to have such a fantastic team at the task force where we each kind of have our own little pockets of expertise and we can rely on each other to kind of respond to what's happening. Of course, everything fires me up that's happening on the federal level. It's <laughs> just been, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a barrage of attacks um, on LGBTQ folks on every level, on, in housing, on the census, and reproductive justice, and just anything you think of, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, I, I can't quite say like how we go about picking, but we have our our areas of expertise and how um, we go about responding to that. We work together as a team very well, um, but it, it is difficult. It's difficult to keep my head from spinning all the time. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, it's just been kind of nonstop. So it has been very difficult. You know, and in the midst of this, you know, and I I know that there is this move to to queer the census, and as you look at these things, okay, when we look at um, the trans ban, we look at this assault on women's reproductive rights, we look at uh, voting rights, and you say, why? You know, this is your, your, you know, and, and, and also the question on citizenship on the census, why is it important for us to Queer the census to show up and to answer this because I know a lot of people I know they go like well you know I don't want to I know people who have basically in many reasons no reason to not sort out but go like I don't want them to know my business what is the importance of the census and what is the importance of the census particularly to the LGBTQ community? Sure yeah thanks for asking that I. I've gotten into census advocacy in the past few years, and the more I learn about it, the more I am just, I just want everyone to fill it out because it's so important, right? It it does kind of, I would say, three important things. One is it has to do, um, it it affects aspects of democracy. 
It um, controls funding for social service programs like Medicaid, SNAP, Section 8, housing vouchers, and stuff like that. And it also helps with enforcement of civil rights protections. So for example, with respect to democracy, census data is used to redraw district lines and distribute representative seats. And, and these things affect the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important because um, inevitably when we're doing the census, there are so many people who are undercounted. And this is usually trans transgender people, queer people, people of color, immigrants, people who are experiencing homelessness, people who rent. It's, it's just like a whole list of people where LGBTQ people are generally overrepresented. And so one of the things that I really um, hone in on is that our, our folks access Medicaid, access SNAP at higher rates, and we really need to ensure that there are enough funding for those things uh, where we live. And the way we do that is by filling out the census. Um, and I know you mentioned the citizenship question, which is a huge, huge concern for um, a lot of our communities. Um, and this is um, kind of a case that the Supreme Court is going to decide at the end of June, and we're, we're watching it closely and, um, you know, hoping for the best. Uh, but yes, the citizenship question is, is basically just a blatant attack on um, getting our communities counted uh, because they, the administration knows that there's fear around filling out the census if the um, citizenship question is there. And there's absolutely no reason for it to be there at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and like you said, I mean, it's sort of like many things, like the road leads back to the census. I mean, if we talk about who's in the house, who's representing us, okay? Um, if, if like you're talking about how if so many people didn't come in and fill it out because of that citizenship um, question, it could change the way that the House and the Senate, the House looks, not the Senate, the House looks, and as far as representation. And these people are the same ones who we want to be there when it comes down to, like you said, we're allocating money for health care to making sure that people have equal access to it. You know, uh, yeah, who ends up in the, in the White House? So it's like many roads in the back. You know, we always say it's important that you vote. It's important that you vote. It's important that you vote. But almost as important as it is that we tell people to get out and to vote, it's important that they get back to the census because those numbers and that representation influences so much. Absolutely. And that's part of why uh, we've kind of folded in our get out the count and get out the vote efforts together because we believe that they're super linked and that, you know, when people are caring about one, they should be caring about the other. Um, so we're, we're really um, honing in on that aspect and ensuring people are both getting out the count and the vote. Mm -hmm. So now you've done some work with um, sex education and, you know, and I would say that part of sex education also includes that people are not talking in schools. They don't want to talk about HIV and AIDS, okay? Um, also, you know, a woman's reproductive right and people and, you know, many people who are in the LGBTQ community, I mean, are women, you know, cis women, but that we also have trans women and there's certain things about their bodies that need to come. When you see these things that are happening 
in these states. You know, I could see it would be very demoralizing for particularly if you're trying to come out as being queer, but also knowing that you're under attack for all of these other things. What should be the voice? You know, because many people, I saw something for Planned Parenthood um, up here, and they were planning a panel, and they were all of a sudden, so, okay, well, you know, I guess we should ask gay people to, to come and sit on this panel so that because it's important to them too. How do we get our quote-unquote allies, often our progressive sisters, to recognize that these are our issues too and that and what should be our voice in this? Yeah, so a few things I wanted to touch on. One thing you said is it's very demoralizing for, um, you know, young LGBTQ folks um, to be in school and not being able to see their, their lives represented, their experiences represented. And I would say it's, it's much more than that, right? It's, it's, it's dangerous. Um, there are super high rates of trans uh, suicides among young people because they're not seeing their lives represented through sex ed and through just general education in schools. So it's, it's, very, it's a very dangerous time um, for, for our young um, queer and trans people um, because not only through sex ed, though that's what I mainly work on, but like just the harassment, the bullying, the, the protections for LGBTQ students is, is kind of in trouble. So um, that's just one thing I wanted to touch on. But um, in terms of, you know, having our, our voices centered and, and amplified, uh, particularly with our partners, this is uh, especially highlighted with um, kind of the, the Stop the Bans uh, like advocacy. And today there was a rally at the Supreme Court, which I went to, um, and there was just a lot of rhetoric around how, you know, th- this is very dangerous, very damaging for women. And it was just a lot of um, censoring around women which it absolutely affects, but it also kind of erases our, our trans, GNC, and non-binary intersex mm-hmm. siblings who are, who are also having the same issue and having the same issues to access abortion, who are being erased from the conversation. So we're always trying to lift up their voices and amplify it um, because we want to make sure that they're also included in the conversation. Yeah, and I think that that's, and it's almost like, yeah how we have to make our way at the table sometimes to sort of say, excuse me, you know, we do have these, and these are things that are happening, and we do have to to have a say. And, you know, it's like to me, I don't see why I should have to, you know, put away my queer hat to talk about women's issues. You know, they're one and in the same. Absolutely. And that's what, you know. And I know, too, here in Detroit, like at the Ruth Ellis Center, they were able to partner with a hospital to provide medical services because a lot of LGBTQ youth um, aren't able to get any access. Okay, not from in school. Maybe their parents don't want to accept who they are, so they can't go there. I mean, and so here they are able to go. They have hours where they can go in there. Some of them are getting hormones. Some of them are getting checked for STDs. I mean, all of these things that they're able to go to by having some place for us. Because in the broader community, we aren't always welcome. Absolutely. 
And, and, you know, that you mentioned Detroit, I just did a kind of year-long project um, in Michigan that was kind of Detroit-focused, where we put together a group of young LGBTQ activists who were interested in furthering sex ed policy in Michigan. Um, and through like nine months, we did a lot of organizing training, leadership development. Um, we did a whole bunch of webinars and trainings, all to kind of... Um, give them the tools and resources they need to put together this conference that was statewide. Um, and we had around 90 people come out to this conference that was, that was focused um, on sexual health and um, sex ed, particularly for centering LGBTQ people. And it was, it was just great because it was so, it, it just seemed like necessary to center the voices of young LGBTQ people who are going through it. And so they were able to bring their voices on what issues matter to them. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take our first break here. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the work that you do and how it relates to the census. We'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Teisa Morimoto, who is with the task force. She works with the census, but she also works on a lot of other, other things. And you were talking about how you came here in Michigan, and you were working with LGBTQ youth. And you know, that is so important to me, because sometimes it sort of looks like you have one group who was talking about they've been doing it this way forever, and then you have young people who are trying to to hear their voices, and they do have voices, and they're living in today. So how you handled it, you know, back in the day is not the same as the way that somebody who's doing it today. And I noticed a lot of young people at Creating Change when it was here last this year. How... Is that part of one of your roles as um, in your position to help reach out to and bring in young people and engage them in all of the things that, that you're looking at, including the census? So I, I work with young people um, specifically in the realm of sex ed. Um, I did this project that we talked about in Michigan, and I'll be doing it again um, at in Dallas this year, um, we're kind of mm -hmm. following Creating Change because we um, give the young people the opportunity to attend uh, Creating Change and be able to see workshops and kind of uh, build their their skills around um, advocacy 
through that. Um, but insofar as working with young people, I mostly just do it through sex ed. What are some of the main issues that young people have as far as sex ed besides, I mean, and it seems like they're trying to be even more restrictive about what you hear about in school. I mean, you know, I was reading someplace where they said they didn't want to have books and what is it, one state that just said they weren't even going to show some kind of um, something that's on PBS because it was going to have a gay marriage in it. So it's like really trying to erase us. How does it, you know, and you know what, when you're young, it's hard enough, but when, like you said, you talked about before how we're they're erasing us where we're not even going to be able to see images of it. How can young people and the programs that the task force have help particularly in sex ed, in this, where we have a, a divorce at the head of the education department, you have other people who, who want to erase us. How can we hold that line? How can we make sure that young people are learn, have access to, and can express what they're looking at? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, I think, like I mentioned, it's just centering young people and giving them the tools they need. I think it's trusting young people, which is something we don't do a lot, particularly with sex ed and with their own sexual health and bodily autonomy. Um, I feel like right now sex ed is very kind of, you know, we, we tell you what's best for you because you're too young or too inexperienced, but I think we really need to start trusting young people because they know what's best for them. And so I think centering um, their voices, hearing their needs, what they say that they need is, is really crucial to the conversation. Okay. So if they're in their family, okay, how would they, I mean, we're talking about querying the census. And, you know, we often want to make sure that we're reflected in there. But, you know, some kids who are at home, their families aren't that welcoming. How can they participate, make sure that, it's recognized that here's a queer youth in this family. I mean, or is it strictly up to whatever their parents put down there or, you know, will they be able to have a voice? You know, so, so one of the, the things around the census right now is that they don't actually collect information on kind of gender identity or sexual orientation as of now. It was something that um, – it was planned to be put on this census, and so the new administration came in and kind of put a pause <laughs> on that. Yeah. Although they, they had a lot of um, research and data already available to show that the, the gender identity question would, would be um, a good question to add. Um, so right now, there's no way to kind of capture that identity, but we're working to change that, and the task force has been working on census advocacy for decades now. Um, but the, the important part of census, and it's, it's, it's a messaging point that we really want to um, push out, but it's been a little difficult because, because they don't collect identity uh, information, is just you need to be counted on the census. Um, you need to make sure that you are put down as someone who, who lives in that household or occupies that household um, for now. That's what the important part is, because that's how we make sure that um, we have, um, you know, fair and accurate counting for, for the, the democracy piece, for our representatives, and also for the social service funding. So for, for right now, the important piece is being counted. 
Um, and hopefully, in the next census, we'll be able to put those identity markers down. So what do, because you know, and we know that LGBTQ youth, there's a high rate of homelessness. Um, and in fact, you know, when I was talking to um, the executive director at Ruth Ellis, Jerry Peterson, he said, well, some of these kids don't consider themselves homeless. He said, like, they're couch surfing. What they consider home is different. Some of them consider the Ruth Ellis Center um, home. How do we make sure that, you know, these young adults, these, these teens, how do we make sure that they aren't slipping through the cracks? That's a great question. And, you know, a, a lot of it, because as you said, a lot of these kids don't consider themselves homeless. They're in, they're like sleeping in cars, they're sleeping at friends' places, on couches and stuff like that. It's, it's really difficult, right? And I think um, increasing education and awareness around census can really help with that. So it would be a matter of, you know, during the phase where we're reaching out to partners and um, talking to organizations, maybe it would be talking to Ruth Ellis Center and explaining how important the census is and ensuring that they capture all the young people that are there um, on the day of the count, which is April 1st, 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it is, is education and, and working in coalitions, working with organizations to ensure that they know the importance of it um, before we even go to the like public education phase uh, where we're talking to individual people to make sure that they're being counted. Are you encouraging uh, members of the LGBTQ community to be uh, census um, takers? You know, because I've, I've, I've seen a couple of things already saying, you know, like they're already looking for people to go around and help do the census because, you know, it's easier when you see someone who looks like yourself who comes and asks these questions. So are there opportunities for us to be involved in that? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, we definitely are encouraging um, folks in our community to be census takers because we really want um, people who are census takers to, to look like the communities that they're going into, right? Um, that way they are trusted more, people um, are, are respond better to that. And you know, beyond that, uh, we really are encouraging LGBTQ people to also join complete count committees and um, doing a lot of organizing in their own communities so that they um, are a familiar face. So I have to ask you, they are in D.C., and um, were you, and I know that you went to, to a rally today, but when they were talking about the Equality Act, what were your impressions on that? I mean, you know, and I know it made it through the House, but we still don't, I mean, and, and what is it, 30 states? we can still be fired for being gay. And, you know, this is a big step, but I know I talked to some people now, and they said, well, that's as far as it's going to go because it won't make it through the Senate, and if it does, well, you know, the administration is going to, to try and squash it. But being there and having gone through your journey and seeing so many people from our community there who are testifying and seeing it get to that point. How did it make you feel? And what are you optimistic about? What would you say to someone who, who isn't optimistic and saying, well, you know, we don't have the Senate, so it's not going to go anywhere. What would you say to those? Yeah, and you know, I was actually at the House voting for the Equality Act, and it was the first time I had seen um, a vote in that gallery. So mm -hmm. it was 
particularly emotional for me to to be able to witness it and to be able to witness it for a piece of legislation that I so strongly support. Um, and, you know, it was the Equality Act was introduced um, first, like 40 years ago, and this is the uh-huh. first time that it went this far. And, and it was just like, completely incredible to to live in a time where it was possible and to have so many champions in the house to be able to do that. I think uh, one thing um, that I learned coming into the policy world is how long things take. I I feel like a lot of people thought, uh, let's say, for instance, like the the marriage, right, same-sex marriage kind of happens out of nowhere. Like we heard some things about it, um, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it was being passed. But it, it was it was like over a decade of movement building of work from, from organizers, from people who do policies, from all these advocates and um, activists. And I think what people miss out on is how much work people are putting in every day for such a long time to make things happen. So, so it may not pass the Senate now, or it may stop in the administration now, but the fact that we pass it in the house and that there's so much um, coverage around it, that there's so much media around it, that there's so much exposure to it makes me super hopeful that it may be something that passes in the next administration. Um, and, and that would have, would not have been possible if it didn't go through today, right? It, it needs to go through like a series of, of different points in order for it to be successful in the future. So I'm very hopeful for it to, to pass um, in the future, even if, um, it just passes the house today, which is, I think, already a super big accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that often people don't recognize, you know, how much work it, it is. I was listening on NPR, and they did StoryCorps, and they had David Wilson and his husband, Rob, I want to say it's Compton, who were two of the, the plaintiffs, in Massachusetts, and I can remember, like, when I, I first met them and them telling the story and about how what they had gone through to get to that point, to have that, and then they were able to get married in Massachusetts, and it was like, wow, we'll never be able to get married anyplace else. And now we've got, like you said, it took years, but now we've got, you know, we can get married. And like you said, now that we've been married and we can't, you can't shut the door. So once you start to have this conversation, and I know so many people are like, you can still get fired? I say, yes. <laughs> you know, you can, you know, yeah, you, know person, you can, you can, you know, I was talking to, I talked to Carter Brown, and it would, and the day that he testified, it was the same day that Lori Lightfoot got elected mayor of Chicago. And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, what a crazy world we live in that here you can have an, out lesbian get elected mayor of the third largest city in the country and in the nation's capital here's a trans man talking about how he was fired for being when he was outed for being trans and it's still going on absolutely yeah yeah it's just like a a really really crazy world but again a lot of it goes back to like you know and voting and the census, because when we come out and vote, when we participate, we get people who hear our stories. And I often tell people, you know, we might not immediately change their heart and mind, but we might just move it enough 
to where we can create change. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So now you're at the task force. Um, you work on criminal and economic justice. What part, you know, what, what is happening for us? I mean, you know, we still see, you know, because I think that part of criminal and economic justice has to at some point in time address the fact that our trans sisters and to a lesser, to a less visible extent, trans brothers and members of our trans community are still being harassed, attacked, and murdered. I mean, the fact that, you know, we had someone who had been, they had shown a video of her being attacked, and then shortly later she's dead. I want to say in the past few days we've had like four trans people killed. You know, and you're working in criminal justice. How how are we going to change the criminal justice system to address these assaults on our trans community? You know, if it was a cis person, particularly a straight cis person, and, you know, they can get protections and stuff or whatever, there'd be more of an uproar. But we keep dropping trans sisters' bodies on the street. And the criminal justice system doesn't really seem to be doing something to protect them. What can we do? Oh, it's a big question. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, this, this criminal legal system, the way that is particularly trans women, particularly black trans women, are policed, harassed every day and lead to their incarceration or lead to um, their murders is, is, is atrocious. It's, it's absolutely um, a, a huge problem that's been happening for many, many years and has just maybe um, come to light now. But the fact that people are policed, um, especially with regard to um, perceived like gender, quote unquote, behaviors or, or um, just this like moral policing and how it leads to folks' incarcerations or murder is, is just... I, I don't even know what to say about it. It's it's um, disgusting. It's it, it has to stop. Um, and mm-hmm. and there are so many activists and advocates working on that. Um, one particular uh, field that I focus on is is with um, what's called the Prison Rape Elimination Act or PREA, um, mm-hmm. which was just kind of started to be enforced um, in 2013, but it essentially was written to protect folks um, from sexual harassment and sexual abuse in um, confinement settings. Um, and of course, this, this affects um, queer and trans people disproportionately uh, because of the reasons that I mentioned, that they're harassed because of the way they're perceived or because of their perceived sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, so, we're, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult because the criminal um, legal system is, is one place where there is just hasn't, we haven't been able to have a lot of um, kind of policy changes or like any legal changes because they're very strict around um, 
what they perceive to be like criminal offenses. Um, but there are a lot of people working um, to change that. You know, I thought it was uh, amazing that Ed, when they were doing the part of the Equality Act, that at some point in time, there was someone who came back to the whole thing about not being safe in the bathroom, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, a straight man is what we're afraid of in the bathroom and how trans and queer people aren't safe in the bathroom. Not, you know, we're not being the aggressors. We are often the victims. And it, but it sort of seems like for some reason that there is unfortunately a portion of the society many who are lawmakers, that see us, LGBTQI people, just for being ourselves is somehow criminal. I mean, well, we're going to do something wrong or that it's okay. You know, we're either we're going to be taking advantage of somebody or, hey, well, you know, if they just didn't want to live that way. And doesn't this also, again, go back to why we need to vote and take and be a part of the census because so that, you know, we can influence these people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and everything we've talked about today with regard to sex ed, with regard to um, reproductive justice, the criminal and economic um, justice system, as well as census, all, all have to do with power and how the folks who are in power enact these laws, enact these policies, do whatever they're doing to keep that power. And so for the idea of us building power, the idea of our communities, um, people of color, LGBTQ people building power terrifies them. And, and I think that's the way to fight back is to continue building that power in spite of everything they're doing to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think, too, that it, it, not only is it power, by doing the census and sort of, to, to give a sense of the numbers, you know, that it isn't, you know, just like, no, don't say you don't know anybody because everybody knows anybody and that we're, bit, we're a larger community than we need to be more visible because having lobbied, and I'm sure that you know, when you go and you say, when you go and you say that you're with the task force, they know that the task force, if nothing else, they don't know anything else, you know, they have once a year, they're able to bring thousands of people together and they have people who support them throughout. There are other LGBTQ organizations, and that, you know, that makes people take a moment, you know, because this might not be, this might be one of your constituents' niece, cousin, whatever, and maybe you might want to blow off this, this gay kid, but it might be their mom or dad who will go like, they didn't want to talk to you, you know? I mean, so... That's part of the importance, again, of showing up. Absolutely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Okay. So, um, you know, you did, you had, um, and one of the other things that I also saw that you talked about was, and you sort of talked about like how about um, being safe when your people are incarcerated, but you also ex- talked about the dangers of the for-profit prison industry. You know, because people say, well, if you if you have a for-profit prison, oh, they're going, you, you'll have better guards and they'll treat people better. But they don't. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a business. What happens to a queer person who goes into a for-profit prison? Are there any 
do they have any additional protections or do they have fewer protections than if they went into one that is regulated by a government? You know, I, um, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe that there are particular laws that every, every like, incarceration uh, confinement system has to follow. Um, but then also the private systems have more freedom to have their own policies around um, how they um, go about conducting business, right? But, but this piece around um, for-profit industries and the fact that um, people, corporations gain money based off of people incarceration is just, it's just awful, right? And, and, you know, I, we, this is another part of the criminal and economic justice work that I do, which is, um, you know, last election cycle in Florida, there was Amendment 4, um, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, before this um, past election cycle, Florida was one of three or four states that um, barred people who were convicted of a felony from voting. Um, you basically had to go through a very onerous uh, process in order to get those voting rights back. Um, and some people never got those rights back in their whole lives, right? So it's a very um, harsh system. And there was an amendment on the ballot this past um, election cycle, which would uh, automatically restore those rights for folks who had completed their entire sentence. Now, um, what happened in the, in recent, um, in the past few months is that they've, voted, the legislator and the governor voted to um, put in this additional kind of requirement, which is actually they're not automatically restored until you pay off all the Uh fines and all the restitution that you owe. And this is just another way to to bar people, right? It's it's Uh the fact that you are paying for your own incarceration, that you're paying for your own probation is I it's just unconscionable to me. Um, so th- this is just one other way that they're keeping power from us is, is imposing these extra bans and, and uh, restrictions to keep us from voting. Um, so this, this is another thing that we'll be working on when we're um, on the ground in Florida doing our census and voting advocacy. And, you know, and the thing that, you know, because I've done some, you know, door-to-door-to-door knocking, not only here but in other places, and, and that there are some places where people could vote, but that those on the right will say, oh, well, you know, you can't vote because you've got a record. And sometimes in other states it isn't. And so the fact that they did that in Florida and then what you also see many, uh, many other ballot proposals and things that go through that the people say this is what they want, then you see these legislators go in and they try to, like, I guess, for lack of a better word, micromanage it to take it back away from them. And, I mean, that is just, like, real. And how do we, you know, push back against that to, you know, let the people have their say? Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, one of those other systems of oppression, like, one after another after another, that they're continually trying to impose on us. Um, The only thing we can do is continue fighting back through gerrymandering, through all these things that, you know, voter suppression, I mean, they do so much to make people not be able to vote. And, you know, and when you think about prisons and I think about the criminal justice system, I have to say that as a person of color, but, you know, I'm female, but if I were a young 
black, brown, Asian, queer person, you are more likely to get pulled over and end up in this system than if you're white. And then if you happen to be queer and there's nothing, nobody there looking out for you, you're going to be victimized. So, you know, you can be profiled, arrested, victimized, and don't be trans. You know, then you'll be dead, you know. And it's just like how we need our organizations, we need that kind of education and talking to on the ground because often if you just say it, there's people who don't believe you, but that that on the ground work makes the change. So you said you're going to be in Florida and you're going to do it. Is that going to be like sort of your strategy, not to have, not to just do, you know, this press releases and you hear all that, but there's also that part that ground-to-ground work, which we also did around marriage, whereas people got to know us, they said, you know, they don't have two horns and a tail, you know. So is this a kind of work that you're going to try and do in Florida to go to places and tell people exactly what it means and what has happened and how the vote has been switched around from what they thought was happening to keep people from being able to vote. Yes, 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 absolutely. And and that's also what we did um, during the 2018 election. We went there for the primaries. We went there in between, and we were also there for um, – uh, the polls and and doing door knocking. We were canvassing. We were we were out at um, LGBTQ nightclubs and bars and talking to people about Amendment Four there. And that's that's kind of uh, similar to what we'll be doing um, in 2020 as well. We'll be doing a lot of um, census advocacy on the ground. Uh, we're putting together um, hopefully sometime in September or October a toolbox. Um, where we'll be sending out to organizers um, across the country that kind of gives them like a toolkit around the census and how to talk to individuals and partners, um, but also some like information that folks can hang, hand out in public, uh, hand, hand out to people. Um, and we'll also be making some like palm cards around like pride events, particularly Black Pride events this June, so, so that we are really making sure that we're giving our communities the best information um, on how they can get involved and how these issues affect them, um, coming from people who are in that community. So yes, we'll be on the ground um, for census and for for get out the vote efforts, and probably um, it, specifically in Florida, maybe other states as well. But um, we are going to be doing canvassing and and door knocking and all the organizing. So I'm really excited about it. Mm-hmm. And will you be working? I mean. And 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 on many of the things that you're you're looking at and that you're involved in, how do you form partnerships with organizations that aren't LGBTQ? Like when you talk about working with Planned Parenthood, when you're talking with other places that are t- trying to get out to vote, how do you work? How do you build these coalitions? Yeah, um, it, it depends on kind of the the particular project that we're working on. So for instance, um, there's one kind of coalition that we have on a federal level called FedWatch um, that my colleague Megan Mori runs, and that has around 300 organizations and individuals being involved. It's kind of like a, a watchdog of um, federal regulatory policy. 
And, and essentially what the task force tries to do is um, queer the progressive movement and also um, kind of make the queer movement progressive, right? So depending on the project that we work on, we involve different partners and particularly, let's say, the work in Florida, we are asked to join in on this Amendment 4 um, effort to kind of be the LGBTQ um, voice um, in, in Florida on the issue. And, and that was um, based on a lot of the work that we do and also um, having a relationship with, with Desmond Mead, who was, who was leading those effort, efforts in Florida. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talked a lot about, like, you know, it was a blue wave, but there's a big rainbow wave happening, too, you know, I mean, which, I, which sometimes people miss. How do we, you know, how do we talk about the rainbow part of, of this movement, of what happened? I mean, a lot happened in November. I mean, so it wasn't just all blue. It was um, rainbow. And then... I'll tell you a perfect example. In Chicago, there were people, and, and you know, and this is what I love about being queer, uh, that, that who said, okay, they weren't just going to vote for Lori Lightfoot because she was a lesbian. They did some, they looked, they challenged, they asked questions to find out where exactly she stood. And then they were able to give their full support. How do we tell our community that, no, you don't just have to be part of a blue wave. You can be, it should be a rainbow wave, and part of the rainbow is blue. But, you know, how do we, we get people engaged and involved to ask these questions? Yeah, and I think it's, it's tough, too, because in, in, like, communities that are queer, in communities that are progressive, you, like, there's still some problematic stuff, right? Like you still see some problematic things coming out of um, the LGBTQ community that um, it's just not great, right? So, no. so like, uh, there's, I, I think there's a lot to work on in, in kind of both areas in, in the progressive movement and also in um, the LGBTQ movement. Um, I guess I don't quite have an answer on, on how to motivate them, but, like, I think just doing your research, just knowing what values are important to you and, and seeing what values that these, the people who are running, uh, the people who uh, you are um, researching, like that they're good on the issues that you want to, to be seen uplifted or that you want to see tackled. So um, just, just do your research, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, we're going to take our second break and – We'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode.
And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. So, Issa, you know, I've read different things. And when you were coming up and, and not seeing many of your community and then finding yourself, and now it seems to me you have you, you definitely have a voice. You are very clear and, and, and think about things and have a view on what's happening in the world. What helped you, besides the creating change, <laughs> uh, but, but, but what helped you find this voice and stay true to, you know, that young woman who wanted to be in social work or anthropology because you were interested in people. You got into law, but you maintained that concern about your fellow human beings. What has what has helped you? What has influenced you? I mean, what influenced you to, to take this path? I, I think a couple things. One is that, uh, like I think I mentioned, in, in spite of all the messaging that I was hearing from my family around, you know, n- not really doing anything important or not doing anything worthwhile, I still had something in me that told me that it, it was the right thing to do, and and I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Um, That was one piece. And then joining the task force and being just so supported by my colleagues, um, by my supervisors and bosses, and just hearing those kinds of praises and just affirmations that I never got growing up was really important to me in in kind of um, feeling like the work that I do is important and valid. and then I would say the last piece um, that I could think of right now is definitely my wife who pushes me every single day mm-hmm. and challenges me to, to be a better person and advocate because um, I've just learned a whole, a whole bunch from her. Um, and I think that she's really um, changed my life a- as a person but also as an advocate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. You know, I've talked to – in the past few days, I talked to someone who was from Canada um, where they have had, I mean, Canada leads in many ways in LGBTQ rights. And um, he and his partner have been together for 10 years. They're not married. And he said, well, you know, I don't think that it's important. You know, I mean, we have this and that and the other. Then I also talked to Dr. Julie Nemechek, who is a trans activist, and she and her partner have been together for 46 seven years. Wow. Um, and that's wow. like 47 years. <laughs> okay. How important is marriage from your perspective? You know, the fact that you are, were able to be married, how important is that? You, you know, I, um, growing up, it was kind of just like a, a normal thing. I didn't think much of it. And then like during undergrad years, I definitely was like, oh, it's just kind of like a contract and uh, kind of like a, just a social contract and, and all these things, um, which I, I still kind of um, hold on to those beliefs. I think that it's definitely um, a way that people have um, legislated how to get more power. Um, but it was a conversation that I, I had with my wife and it, we decided that it was kind of the best option for us. And, and it's 
it's been really wonderful. Um, I, I would say nothing has really changed from being from like before married and after married, but it's, it's the same feeling of just um, being committed to each other and wanting each other's company. So it, it's been really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you've talked a couple of times about the task force family, and I think it's amazing to me that each year they're able to put together this, this conference where it's, to me it's like the big gay family reunion. We come and you see people who you haven't seen in years and or you meet new people and it's, you feel home. So what, is, what all do you see? Do you see yourself a long career at the task force? What would you like to be able to do that you aren't able to do right now? The task force has been so great in in giving me kind of freedom to um, do the work that I do or give input into the work that I'm doing. Um, they've allowed me to kind of create the sex ed project that I run now and and kind of run with it, which was a kind of a dream come true for me. Um, so I would say I I love working at the task force. Like I said, it's my dream job. Um, I've been able to do things that I, I didn't even think were possible, and I've grown so much um, at the task force and have been given so much opportunity to grow and develop um, in my career, in my activism, and just just be myself. Um, and I cannot ask for more. It's, it's mm-hmm. just been really fantastic. Now, you say that how you did the sex ed program here in Detroit, and you're going to follow, you're sort of like following Creating Change. You're going to do it in Dallas. How do you... How do you mold it for each city? I mean, how, how are you looking at it like differently for what are you picking, taking from Detroit, but what are you looking at in Dallas that will make it different? You know, I, I think the beautiful thing about this project, is it's really led by the young people who, who are part of the group, right? So I, I did have like particular trainings in mind that we wanted the, the young people to be on a, a baseline about, like querying reproductive justice and um, storytelling training and, and stuff like that. But really all the work was led by the young people. So whatever they thought were the issues in their communities, um, the, the issues that were faced um, by people of their age or, or in their particular schools, it was all really led by them. And I'm hoping to take kind of the same model to the folks in Dallas. So I, I'm taking kind of the same idea of being a resource for them and giving them um, trainings and et cetera. But really, whatever they think is important, whatever they feel like they need, I am there for them to to do my best to give them the support that they need to be able to do um, the work that they need to. That's great, you know, because often, I mean, they're often like when, that you'll hear from young people, okay, well, someone came with a program and they don't want to hear them, you know, they say, well, this is what you're going to do, this, and they don't want to hear that. And the fact that you were able to, is that how you envisioned it as you were coming up with it? And did you think back to, like, when you were a young person that that was the kind of program or that's something, a project that, that you would have wanted what you had been looking for as a young person is what you wanted to provide for them. I don't think I could have ever thought of being in, in such a program or like, I don't think I was even there, honestly, as a young person. I got into activism pretty, um, I, I would say late 
I feel like in my life. Um, I know a lot of people who started activism and stuff when they were very young. Um, and, and so it, it's just been, um, it's been an interesting experience because uh, if I try to think of what I wanted when I was young, I don't think I could have dreamed this up. And, you know, it was an interesting experience for, for the young people in, in Michigan because I was really encouraging them to um, apply to do a workshop at Creating Change. Um, and I, I know some of them were like, what makes me qualified or what makes, why would, why would someone want to listen to me? Right. And, and I think in the beginning, that was a lot of the attitude. It was just like, why am I important? What makes me um, someone that people want to listen to? And, and by the end of it, they really transformed. They were, they, um, all of them gave workshops or facilitated a, a session at the conference that we put on. And it was it, the change, the transformation was just so incredible to see how they went from, you know, these people who, who were, uh, weren't confident in their ability to, to teach someone something to giving workshops on um, masturbation as storytelling or, or um, consent um, or how virginity is a construct. So it was just really incredible to see um, the confidence that they gained, the the ability to see themselves as experts in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's important, too, when we talk about doing intergenerational work, is that where you are now, you are, you are an expert in your part in life, and we can learn from each other. And, you know, I've been inspired sometimes when I see organizations where you'll have an elder work with a young person, and they both walk away talking about what they've learned you know, from each other. And that, that to me is like just like that's how you build community and that, uh, build a sustainable community. And it's not on the back of anybody. We're all doing a little bit of lifting together. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I know that the next Creating Change is going to be in Dallas. Um, what else, you know, and for those who don't know why they would come to the task force other than for creating change, can you give us, like, let's, for the lack of a better word, your elevator pitch on why come to the task force? Why support the task force? I, I think um, creating change is such a great space where, like you said, people come um, from all over around 4,000 people come to learn from each other, and it's a really great space. Um, I think lesser known perhaps is, is kind of the advocacy stuff that we're doing, right? So we're doing a lot of work around queering the census, queering democracy, uh, reproductive justice, and we do a lot of faith work as well, uh, which uh, I think a lot of people don't know. We've we've had a faith team for I think as long as the task force has been around. Um, so so we kind of have a model in my department that I work in, which is advocacy in action, which is um, queering faith, equity, and democracy. And so we have a lot of work around that, um, which which people can find and access if you go to thetaskforce.org slash advocacy. And it kind of highlights um, a lot of the work that we've done in my department um, around organizing, around policy um, that, like I mentioned before, kind of queers the progressive movement and makes the um, queer movement more progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, you have done a lot. I mean, which is, I mean, and there's all different faiths that you find that where people are able to come in. And faith is something that many in our community struggle with. You know, 
it has been both uh, a saving grace but also a slap in the face. And so, so to find that place in between to where people can reconcile with that and feel good, you know, find that space that's so important. So we're coming towards the end. How are you celebrating or what would you like people to know about the AAPI community and how to, what's a good way to be an ally to or to to get a better understanding and make sure that they're seen at the table? Uh, Yeah, I think it's always... um... I think that's a, a, a great question. And, and one organization that I always love to highlight is NCAPIA. Uh, that is a queer um, API organization that does a ton of work around issues that matter to us, that are important to us, um, and has great framing around their issues. And, and I, think that, um, I think that sometimes we make issues so, like, for lack of a better word, so black and white that we often forget other um, communities of color that are affected in in so many different ways, but the root cause of all the oppression against people of color is the same, right, which is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think that keeping that in mind that we're all fighting against the same um, structure that's been in place for millennia is, is really important in thinking about who we're working with and, and who we're building community with. And, you know, and I... I'm, like I said, I was really impressed as I watched the task force page, and each time I see him, here's a different person because, okay, AAPI people are as diverse as we are, you know. I mean, it, it represents so many different countries, so many ethnicities, so many different people who come together and who identify as that. And, you know, sometimes you hear people who will, what do you say that when you hear people like, you want to, and I talked about this at Creating Change, too, that sometimes they want to put everybody under this people of color umbrella. But why is it so important also to maintain your identity as AAPI? Like I said, you know, I'm still black. You know, I don't mind being under people of color for some things, but some things are black. Why is it important to celebrate your culture? I think that's a great point, right? Because I think there there are a few things here, which is often people lump people of color together, um, and then I think it erases very specific experiences that that certain people of color have, right? So, like, I have very different experiences from from black people, or I have di- very different experiences from native folks, um, yet often we're lumped together as people of color. So, so I think it's, it is important um, at times um, to, to keep those cultural uh, experiences separate because I'm, I'm not going to be able to fully understand um, what other communities go through even though we're, we're all put under the umbrella of people of color. I think um, talking about people of color, it can be important to kind of fight against um, the system of white supremacy, but I think it can be dangerous to um, to assume that people's experiences are similar or the same, uh, because, like you said, it's just it's just like a vast, rich um, culture of differences and different experiences and different legacies and histories, um, particularly in this country. Um, so, 
I I am also I'm always very um um you know careful to say that not only am I API I I, I say that I'm an East Asian woman right because like mm-hmm. like you said there's so many different cultures um even in the API community um so my experiences are, are very different from let's let's say like my wife who um is from India and grew up there. Um, mm-hmm. So we have just very different identities and experiences and cultures, and I think it's different to to recognize where folks are coming from. Well, Taisha, I want to thank you for being with me tonight um, and for all the work that you do. And like you said, you bring all of you, and, and that's what's so important for anybody in our community is that like you said, even culturally, you know, to bring all of that to it because that's part of that fabric that makes us such a strong community that builds that rainbow. I look forward to seeing you in Dallas, if not before then. (laughs) 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 If not before then, you know, you have to come back to Detroit. That's all. you got to come back just for a visit and nothing else. Um, Oh, I would love to. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, you know, and – Oh, Are you keeping? Do you keep up with the kids, like the young people who you worked with here in Detroit? Do you stay in touch with them? Actually, it's funny you ask that because one um, addition to to this year is that I wanted to add a mentorship component uh, where it would mm-hmm. involve the the people who who were part of the first cohort to do some conversations and trainings um, in order to continue their advocacy with with the new cohort. So yes, uh, definitely. Oh, uh-huh. Oh, that's great. That is really great. You know, because, I mean, I worked with a program once, and that was it, like you said, the first year. And then they, what you found was the next year, the first year ones had brought in new people who were their friends, and it, until pretty soon they were just running the whole show, and that's that's just really, really great. Well, again, I want to thank you um, now that we're all part of our same task force family. <laughs> I'm a cousin, <laughs> you know, you're, you're part of the, you're part of the main family. I'm a cousin, you know, but um, I look forward <laughs> to staying in touch with you and to hear more about what you're doing. That sounds great. Thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate the conversation. I want to thank today's guest, Taisa Morimoto. Taisa is a member of the Asian American and Pacific Islanders community, as well as the LGBTQI community. As policy counsel at the National LGBTQ Task Force, she works on criminal and economic justice, democracy, and census advocacy. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosses of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.